I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Now, last week I started a new series, Walking with God. Walking with God. In fact, it's likely to be a series of series because the first part I'm talking about walking in love, which is a series in its own right. Walking in love. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to walk in love because God is love. And if whoever knows God walks in love. If you don't walk in love, then you don't know God. It's as simple as that. And so we're going to look at that together today. And my overall title for this message is Walking the Living the Life of Love. That's what it is. Living the Life of Love. So let's read verses 1 through 7, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Walking in love. The background behind me is the closest thing we could find to a picture of what the Garden of Eden might have looked like. I don't know. But uh, some of you wonder where does all this greenery come from living here in London. I know there are a lot of green areas in London but maybe the greenest thing that you've got is the uh, the herbs growing outside your your window in in your apartment. But this is supposed to be evocative of what it was like in the beginning. When God created the garden, put Adam and Eve in the garden, and the most important thing about it was not the green leaves and the trees, but it was the presence of God. And I've been speaking to you about the garden of your own soul. How that Adam and Eve, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, suggesting that God in the cool of the day would give them a very special time of communion and fellowship and, 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 and impartation of his presence and his glory and his power and there was nothing that inhibited them there was no barrier at all and then of course the barrier came because they were tricked into, deceived into certainly Eve was deceived, Adam did it with his eyes open that, that, that God himself was not enough deceived into thinking that there was more to satisfaction than what God can provide and who he is. And therefore the root of sin and rebellion against God is rejecting God the, who is the fountain of living water and turning aside and, and turning to idolatrous means to substitute these things for God. And it's the root of all sin. 
Whenever you choose to sin against the will of God, it is because you believe that that sin will give you satisfaction, whereas God cannot or will not give it to you. And so when God says, walk in love, he's talking about the restoration. It's talking about the new creation. He's talking about the salvation, the restored relationship. For you were made for the presence of God. Your very body was made to be a habitation of God. That God would fill you. That God would bless you. That you would be so satisfied with God that the fundamental longings, God-given longings that he made for you, that you should long for his presence and long for his purpose would be fulfilled in Christ. And that's what being saved is all about. And so walking in love is allowing God's Holy Spirit to be shed abroad or to shed abroad God's love, to imprint God's love, to give you an experience of God's love. Not just to know, yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me that's true, but know in the depth of your being so that your very life is shaped by this fact that you know about yourself more than anything else that you know about yourself. You know deeply in the, in the, in the foundation of your being, in the very core of your being, that you are freely, fully, uncomfortable conditionally and eternally loved by God and to enter into the experience of that I tell you what you experience that you'll soon be turning away from the lies of the enemy and dealing with the deception and idolatrous desires in your life and so walking with God is walking in love it is the characteristic of the people of God and we love because he first loved us so today when I'm talking about living the life of love, I want to ask you some very personal questions. Are you ready? How is your love life? Are you a good lover? Are you a great lover? Now, you know, I'm saying this within a church building on a Sunday morning. So uh, you will probably be dismissing or trying to dismiss anyway what those words usually mean when you hear them out there. Hear them on television, people talking in the office, talking about love life. They're talking about sex. They're talking about sexual intimacy and sexual relationships. And what a pity that love has been confused with sexual activity. Now, I'm not saying that those two are not connected because God has given sexual intimacy as a holy of holy expression within marriage between men and women. And it's very sacred, very precious, and very wonderful. But there is much more to love than even sex in its proper context. But it's worse than that in our current society because very often sex is taken out of any context of meaningful relationship and it has become like a kind of commodity. And why is it that love and sex have got confused? When we think about it, perhaps it is because we have a longing to be loved and we have a longing for intimacy and some forms of sexual contact and sexual intimacy is for many people a substitute or at least part of their desire to find that fullness that they're looking for. There's an emptiness without the presence of God. There's an emptiness without intimacy with God and because our minds are not focused on God as they should be because we still believe the deception of the evil one because we still are fundamentally looking for the deepest satisfaction in our lives in things other than God including sexual relationships. That's why so often when people are thinking about love, they end up trying to find it through, through sex. And I, the reason I'm talking to you about this is because I had to find in my mind a reason why God would very 
start in verses 1 and 2 and say all these wonderful things in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 about love and about walking with God as dear children and all this kind of stuff. But the very next verse he says, but fornication. And he starts to speak some very strong things about the abuse of sexuality in the generation of, of Paul's time. And of course, God is speaking through the Apostle Paul, and Paul is ministering mainly to pagan converts or people who come out of the context of paganism in which love was definitely made into some kind of idolatrous perversion of the truth and where human sexuality was even far worse, in, in, was, the whole issue was even more complicated than it is today. And in fact, immorality was so commonplace in the first century that it makes even the 21st century look like a walk in in the park with the Sunday school people. It's really very serious what is happening here. This tells me, first of all, that the problems of sexuality and other aspects of immorality are are not something that that is particular characteristic of this age. And therefore, the Bible that spoke in an earlier age is irrelevant. No. Way back in Paul's time, the situation was at least as bad, and in my view, far worse in many, many occasions, in many, many ways. So the God who addresses the issue Uh, in the first century is the same God who can speak into the 21st century. And the only connection, or the main connection that I can make is that God, when he speaks about love, he has to straight away move on to the perversions of love in the sexual immorality. Now, he's not just talking about sexuality, he's talking about lack of love in human relationships at three levels. Number one, Uh, abuse of sexuality, number two, bad communication, and number three, aggressive covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, it's the love of money. So what God is saying is that if the love of God is deeply in your heart and the whole of your life is shaped by the love of God, then you will treat people differently. You will honor and respect them as as sexual beings uh, and physical beings within God's boundaries uh, and his rules and boundaries concerning human relationships. You will respect and love them by honoring God's word concerning their life. Amen and amen. And also when it comes to communication, your communication will be that of love, not aggressive perversion and communication which denigrates people and, and which, is, which is based in selfishness and sensuality. And when it comes to possessions, you will not have this spirit of acquisition in which you believe that by possessing things you're going to feel good, that, that your life is going to be better if you have more money and therefore greed becomes uh, an aspect of idolatry because a greedy person is an idolater and he says it very very carefully so what he's saying is if only you'd learn about my love you would not want to worship anything else you would not want to worship sex you would not want to worship money you would not want to worship yourself or any other created thing you would be so in love with God and it's this that is missing so often Because love is the gold standard of Christian living. No account of Christian spirituality is complete if it it does not give love a central place. God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when he offers us his love, he desires that we become like him, great lovers. God is the greatest lover of all. And he says, I want you to become great lovers. And the ordering of the commandments in Christ's summary of the law. Remember he said this. Here the, 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 the two commandments. 
The greatest one is love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second one is like to it. It's a it's similar commandment. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus, in his genius of getting to the essence of the law, to talk about what the law was all about, God's desire in giving the law was that he would map out for us what a life of love was, so that when he came and fulfilled the law, we would be ready to recognize him for who he is and follow him, leaving the law behind us, loving God out of relationship, not just because Moses said so. And, and the way Moses defined it is totally irrelevant to us today. We have a relationship of love with Jesus Christ and we are dead to the law and dead to sin because we live under grace. The Bible says, sin shall have no dominion over me because I am not under law, but I am under grace. I'm in Christ. And so it's all about a love relationship with Jesus. Oh, if there was somewhere, I would sing you a love song if it wouldn't drive you crazy and send you out of the building early. I'd sing you any kind of a song uh, which would woo you to Jesus. But our love songs, our worship songs here in the church building have been about uh, falling in love with Jesus again. Let me tell you quite frankly, you need to get back to your first love. Amen. I'll say it again. You need to fall in love with Jesus again. There was an old song, I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. I'm not singing, I'm not singing, promise you. But it, it's so, this is Sunday school stuff in its simplicity, but it will do you good on your deathbed because only love for Jesus is going to give you that assurance. And the assurance of your love for Jesus is not your assurance before God in heaven but the assurance of his love for you which causes you to love him because you love because he first loved God oh people of God let's draw closer to this let's draw closer to this than ever before and um, I, I want to draw your attention to some words by David Benner who's a great author he's written a book Sacred Companions and he describes this like this. I hope it's coming up on the screen. He says, I begin to love God when I know, not simply believe, like say I know, but actually believe and deeply know. I begin to love God when I know, not simply believe, that God loves me. When the thing about me that I most deeply know is that I am deeply loved by God, I have taken the first step towards a heart of knowing God. I have also taken the first step towards genuinely loving others. That's why love is the gold standard. It's the gold standard because it is God's standard. Way back there in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And what's the lifestyle that he talks about? It's the life of love. And so love is the gold standard. Love most fully expresses who we are in Christ and how we are called to live in Christ. And I want to deal with this word worthy because I, I, I struggled with it for many, many years. You know that I'm a grace preacher, a grace man, and I love the grace of God and that has shaped my understanding of God and my theology of God right from the very beginning. And yet, for many years, 
Every time I came to this verse, my heart would sink. I would read Ephesians chapter 1 and be so happy and so excited. Oh, Jesus, open my eyes that I can see more of your love. When I read Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3, the same result. Oh God, I want to know the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. Oh God, I want this. And then I come to chapter 4 where God says, walk worthy. And I began to think, oh wow, this is awful because I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to be worthy before God. And so in, in a slip of a moment, I'd switched from grace to law. And when I read the word worthy, I thought God was telling me I had to be worthy. And I knew I was not worthy. And it doesn't matter, you can preach a thousand sermons. You can go all over the world and receive accolades about being a minister, a preacher, and a servant of God. But if deep down in your heart, your, your, your own heart is not saturated with this truth, then it's not going to help you. You're still going to go home and say, God, have I done enough? God, have I proved myself yet? God, am I good enough for you yet? Am I worthy yet? Can you see how I slipped from grace to law? It's this because this verse, verse 1, is not about you being worthy. It is not about you having to prove that you're worthy. God has done so much for you. You better make sure you are worthy of what he's done for you. That is not what the Bible is saying it's not about that. Because the truth is, in and of ourselves, we are not worthy and could never be worthy. But what God had to do was take our unworthiness and drown it in the infinite ocean of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. So the song of the Lord is not, I'm not worthy. That's not the song of the Lord. The song of the Lord is, you are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. Still some of the dust of Sahara. Excuse me for a moment. How long is that dust going to last? And then when, when I began to realize that, I would never allow myself to think of myself as unworthy. Because that, that unworthy colon is dead, crucified with Christ, and a new colon has arisen. It's the colon in Christ, the one who is seated in the perfection of Jesus Christ. One who is, who is completely immersed in the worthiness of Jesus. His worthiness has become my worthiness. Hallelujah. Praise God. So what does it mean? You can check this out for yourself, but the word is not about how worthy you are. The word is fitting and consistent. And so what this really is saying is, discover who you are in Christ, and then begin to live like that. Work it out. Discover who you are in Christ by faith. Perfected. Even glorified. Even now, see that in heaven, if the devil can't keep you out of heaven, it's too late. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places now. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm not speaking in tongues, that's Swahili. My dual nationality is getting very soon. Kenyan and British. Hallelujah. One day I'll come here, I'll talk like a Kenyan. And the other time I'll talk like a British person. Praise the Lord. Katika Jinala Yesu means in the name of Jesus. So when you hear Katika Jinala Yesu, you say, Amen. Which is also Swahili. Amen. For Swahili is Amen. Got it? Okay. Katika Jinala Yesu. Very good. So it's about consistency. Put it this way. 
Living for Christ is not trying to be what you're not. It's learning to be who you are. Who you are. And so the gold standard is love. And, and it's not now that's an external standard. That's on the inside of us because God has caused his love to be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's shaping us from the inside out. And so when we walk in a way that's consistent with the impulses of the Spirit, consistent with the new nature, then we are walking worthy, according to Paul's language. And this appears twice in our reading today. He talks about what is fitting for God's holy people. In other words, it is what is right and appropriate, what most naturally belongs to us, what fits us. I have a very a wonderful body size, because I can go in and get a suit off the peg and it fits me perfectly provided my expanding ministry does not uh, get in the way. So, uh, but, but some people, you know, they have one long arm, one short arm or they've got thin waist and long legs or, or, or other kinds of variations. Listen, I'll quit while I'm ahead. When we, when we, just in case you think my eyes are focusing on any person in particular. But the point is, is that some people, you know, to feel comfortable in a suit, it probably needs to be altered or tailor-made. And that's what it means with it's fitting. You go into the fitting room, does it fit you? If it doesn't fit you, you don't buy it. And I'll tell you something, the Christian life fits you, so you better buy it. You better go for it big time. Because nothing is more comfortable. Nothing is more fitting than living the life of Christ. Nothing is more rich, more rewarding, more satisfying, and more fruitful than living the life that Jesus gave us to live. Now I know that amen has not come so much from your heart, some of you. It's come from your head. Because you know this is Sunday school and the answer is Jesus. All right. But we've got to sit, sink that head knowledge deep into our spirits. And I'm going to show you how. But when it says it's fitting for saints, it means consistent and appropriate. Because sin has absolutely no place in the life of God's holy people. It's not fitting. Sin no longer fits you. Before you were born again, it fitted you hand and glove. Now I'll tell you something, God has spoiled it because you will never ever be satisfied with sin, even the degree to which you were before. He's ruined you forever. You belong to Him. You are made for heaven. He's ruined you for hell. He's ruined you for destruction. He's ruined you for sin. You, nothing, nobody is more miserable than a backslidden Christian. They are the most miserable people ever. Have compassion on them and say, come on, come back to Jesus. Come on, don't slide away. Slide back, slide back, slide back because God loves you. He's never stopped loving you and it's going to continue to shape you so that you realize that his yoke is easy. It fits. Amen. And so God, however, knows that there are perversions of this lifestyle of love. And he lists three, uh, sexual sin, sin with, by what we say, and sin by what we run after to acquire. And I, d I can't think of anything that reads more like uh, this weekend's papers, headlines, and editorial material. This week, we've seen sexual scandals. This week, we've seen financial scandals. 
And my goodness me, there's been a lot of talk out there that's not been glorifying to God. It's just, this is, this is where we're at. We must not let the world influence us. Let's begin with the first, relational, relational purity. God says, uh, fornication and all uncleanness, let it not be named among you. NIV says, let there not even be a hint of immorality. And yet, this very word, fornication, there's another old word that doesn't come into the New King's concupiscence. See, ooh, this word, fornication, ha, ha, ha. This is Victorian language. Well, actually, you can call it what you like, but it doesn't change one single thing. It is sin. What this is, is sexual expression before you are married. And there's another word alongside that called adultery. And that is sexual expression once you are married. And now, the standard of the world out there is, it doesn't matter. You live together, as long as you love each other. Well, you don't even have to do that. You can live together to see if you love each other. And it's so commonplace. Some of the highest in the land or next to the highest in the land. I've lived like this. Without any bat of an eyelid, perfectly normal. You live together, and then maybe you get married. Or maybe you don't. I'm sorry I've test-driven this, middle, this uh, model long enough, and actually, you know, it's not quite as young as I thought, you know, when we first started out. It's like taking a, a brand new car out of the showroom, driving around for five and seven years, and then returning it and saying, actually, I'm not satisfied with this model. <laughs> Why? Because it's old. <laughs> what a tragedy that we've allowed our minds to be pressed into the mold of something that is so singularly unglorifying to God. And yet we don't even think about it. I know. I've been a church leader for many years. And I know what happens. Important thing we need to know about sexual purity is that when you've embraced the love of God and the goodness of God, that's how you will want to live. And here's a, here's a very challenging quote from a book called, by Randy Frazee called The Connecting Church. And uh, the question is coming up for you on the screen, but I want to tell you about the context. He's talking about Christian community. And he's saying, how can we be a community when we don't have common values? A community has a common purpose, it has a common place and common possessions. And the common purpose is its values. And so we have people who consider themselves to be part of the Christian community and the Christian community itself cannot even articulate what its values are. It's just picking and choosing from the world. And so he says, why, why is this? Why is this? And he puts it down to two things. Are we, are we really convinced about two things? And he talks about them. He says, does the Christian faith offer a basic set of beliefs, values and practices and virtues 
that can be classified as, number one, absolutely true, and number two, totally essential for a constructive and fruitful life. Let's talk about the truth thing first of all. The Bible says there is right and there is wrong. And God has revealed right from wrong and has called us to live the right way. That's what righteousness is, walking in the right thing. We have the free gift of righteousness in Christ, but he also calls us to walk in righteousness. And so that is having standards of right and wrong. That this, if it's there, it's wrong, and if it's here, it's right. Very, very clearly. It is very clear in Scripture. This doesn't mean to say we don't have huge moral questions. And the complexity of modern life uh, it, it makes it easy just to apply black and white morality into highly complex situations. We have to think sometimes, we have to pray, we have to seek God as to how his principles operate in, 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 in our world, but without ever uh, compromising them. There are huge moral questions that we grapple with in today's world. But there is always an absolute standard which we look at in order to make those decisions and judgments. And that is right and wrong. Now our current world does not believe that there is such a thing as absolute right and wrong. And certainly does not believe that it's revealed in the scriptures. They laugh at us when we say we turn to the Bible to discover what is right from wrong. And when that happens all kinds of stuff happens. We used to be able to say, in even our daily language, oh, I'm telling you the gospel truth. In other words, I'm saying what I'm telling you is as true as the gospel. That's a bygone era. Nobody believes that the gospel is true any longer. And look what happens. What about that other statement? You can bank on that. I'll be there tomorrow. You can bank on it. I've never heard anybody say that. Not since the financial crisis when the banks got us all in the trouble. The last thing we can bank on is a bank. So that we've, we've taken that from our language. And I wonder if there's not a connection between the two. When we move away from God's standards, everybody's out uh, for themselves. They do what is right in their own eyes. And when people stop believing in God, they don't end up believing in nothing. They end up believing in anything they so please. That's to paraphrase a quotation from G.K. Chesterton. So what I see here is we need to get back to this. Do we really believe that the Bible word is true and that we should be living our lives according to the word of God? Uh, whether it's our sexuality, our speech, or how we seek to acquire material possessions, it goes back to the word of God. And if we love God, we will love his word. We will love his book because he's given us love letters of instruction. That will help us and what his will is. We won't be unwise. We'll understand the will of God. Because we'll say we love God. We want to please you God. We will find out what pleases him. And we will do it because we love him. Amen and amen. And we'll realize that out of our experience of the love of God. That only God's love satisfies. Satisfies us at a level of depth. No human relationship, no matter how holy or pure, let alone unholy and impure relationships, not even the purest of them can satisfy what God alone can give. And that is the sense of his joy and his presence, his fulfillment and his purpose in our lives. But Randy Frazee hasn't finished. First of all, he says, you've got to be convinced that this is true. A lot of people want to argue and debate. No, it's okay to live together before you're married. Everybody does it. There's some good, there's some good in that. Well... We can show you from surveys that actually it's one of the most damaging things to families. 
Family breakdown now, the worst, the highest cause of family breakdown are unmarried parents of children. That's the highest breakdown in family life in Britain today. And the most stable family life, uh, the most long-lasting and healthy family life is where mother and father are married and they're bringing their children up in the stability of a heterosexual relationship called marriage and producing children within the loving context of that. That is what is demonstrated. So we need to believe that. Uh, really, but not just that about sexuality, about everything God says and say, yes, I'm going to go to the Word of God, not listen to Oprah Winfrey, who's retired from that business now, but anybody else who tells us on television what we should and shouldn't do. And not get it from pooling our ignorance in the coffee tea party, but actually understanding what God says. Uh, it is true. True. But then he also goes on to say, we've got to be convinced that it is essential. That it's essential for what? For a constructive and fruitful life. In other, way, in other words, God's way is good and best. It is satisfying. It is fulfilling. That God, when He says, I'm a good God and I richly reward those who diligently seek me, that I mean what I say. That God is never in a bad mood. That He's always at the top of His power and willingness to bless us. And that His way is the best way. And we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can do it and prove that God's way is good, acceptable, and pleasing. In other words, it's fitting. Amen. It's how we were meant to live. And deep down, how we want to live. It's the most rewarding lifestyle ever. It is life-giving and life-affirming way of living. And that takes faith. More than faith, actually. You've got to prove it. He says, believe it and then act according to your belief and I will show you. That's what it says in Romans 12 verse 2. Can you put it up for me? Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove and approve. Prove it. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Do it, try it, and prove it for yourself. There is no peace, no joy, no thrill than walking in his will. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's to go back to Sunday school songs. Well, they weren't. They were adult songs when I learned them, but you were kids, so it was Sunday school for you, for many of you. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so what about communication? You know, communication is so much about relationship. Without relationship, there can be no communication. Without communication, there can be no relationship. So he says, watch, watch, watch what you say. And he's talking about this self-centered, sensual kind of talk, which is degrading and doesn't build up. It's not wholesome, not wholesome talk. And it's, watch the standards of your speech. Watch the standards of your speech. Watch how you speak. And he talks about how difficult it is and how dangerous it is when you, you in, get involved in 
filthy, foolish talking, coarse jesting. This isn't just about swearing or, or, or telling filthy jokes. It's about any word that comes from your mouth that is not motivated by love for God. Wholesome talk that comes out of a heart so satisfied with that you don't have to put somebody down. You don't have to criticize somebody because you're not defending yourself. You're not trying to project yourself. You're just so in love with Jesus, you've dropped all barriers and you say, God, I love you and I want that love to come out of my, through my speech. And then he talks also about uh, covetousness. Covetousness. And he says, a covetous man is an idolater. And in fact, all of these are idolatrous behaviors. But covetousness is idolatry. Why? Because we are worshiping created things rather than the creator. There's such a thing as need. There's something else called greed. Amen? There is a joy of God's provision and there is a prosperity. But there is also a selfish idolatrous motivation and it kills your spirituality the number one or I don't know I can think of several at the top but close to the top amongst the big three problems amongst our men in this church what keeps them from Jesus what keeps them from growing what keeps them from being men of God what keeps them from being involved in the cell vision and giving themselves 100% to God's real call upon their lives is this very thing covetousness because they have judged many of them that their significance is measured by their bank account or their influence in business or in their employment men I wish I could just ask the women to leave for half an hour I would take I'd give you six rounds on this and I'd win every single one of them I would go so hard on you guys about how you are being deceived by all of this and that you think that by playing games with God and chasing money and chasing success that you're actually doing what God has called you to do you're going to end up miserable even if you're rich you'll end up miserable and rich and, and often be poor and, and miserable at the same time but when you invest in the kingdom of God and the true riches and discover that you were made to be a person of significance, that you were made for the presence of God and that you were made for the power of God and you were made for the purpose of God and when you cooperate with the purpose of God as a result of your complete commitment to his presence, then you bet fruit and your life is worthwhile. Amen. Amen. Give Jesus a praise. Katika jina Yesu. So, we're just going to wind down here now and we're going to deal with the last bit of this passage because, you know, it was very serious in here when I was reading it and, 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 we, and sometimes we skip over these things. We think Roman, uh, Ephesians 5 verse 1 is good. Imitators of God is dear children. Walk in love. That's good. That's good. But then when we come to this, verse 5, no fornicator, unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not be partakers with them said Colin I thought we were talking about love walking in love now you're scaring me don't be scared change don't be scared change be sober and understand. First of all, this has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. 
He's talking to saved people. Dear children who are loved by God, are you a child of God because you love God or you're a child of God because God loved you? Answer me. Which one? You are a child of God because God loved you. Amen. And is God ever going to stop loving you? Of course not. So your security in Christ is assured. God is not going to give up on you. He's going to finish what he began. Amen. When he saved you, he saved you forever. Hallelujah. But this is not talking about salvation. It is talking about inheritance. Inheriting the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? It means that the kingdom of God and all that it brings is manifested in your life. What is the kingdom of God? It is not legalistic questions about eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The inheritance of the kingdom is the good things, the abundant life that God brings you and the rewards both intrinsic and extrinsic, the rewards that come as a result of walking with God that you experience on the journey and that you get at the end of the journey. As we said last week, we all are going for gold. We have gold to go for. And we are in God's Olympics. There is a reward for those who run the race. Hallelujah. He's talking about inheritance and reward. He's not talking about salvation. And he says, understand, there are two kinds of people. There's the us and them. Sorry to put it so bluntly and crudely. Who is the us? Those who are God's dear children by faith in Christ. The them, those who are sons of disobedience. That's the phrase he says. Verse 6. The sons of disobedience. We are sons of God. They are sons of disobedience. In other words, their nature is disobedient. They come from the disobedient line. Their bloodline actually goes right back to the evil one. Their father is the evil one. Our father is the excellent one. Hallelujah. Our father is our, the father of lights within whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. As we say in West Africa, God now good, God devil now bad devil. Amen and amen. So we belong to God, not because we're better, but because we believe and have received Christ. They are living in sin, controlled by sin, owned by the devil. There's an us and a them. Now, before we go any further, our job is to make more of us out of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Our job is to reach them, not to say, oh, there's an us and them. You're going to heaven, we're going to hell. Ooh, ooh. No, it's come. Come, come to, come home, come and know the Father, come and be a child of God, be born again, get your Father in heaven, respond to your heavenly Father's love, receive Christ, be saved, join us, amen, but there is an us and a them, and he says the very things you're doing is the things that God will judge them for. God has judged us in Christ. There is no more condemnation. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with torment and fear and judgment and condemnation. But we are saved by the blood of Jesus. But the wrath of God rests on them for these very things. So he says, why are you participating in it? It's not fitting. This is not you. It's going to bring negative consequences. Whatever you sow, you reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap from the Spirit. And what you reap from the Spirit is the kingdom of God and life that is found in Jesus. 
I put it to you like this. When you are born again and you believe, you enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I believe, I receive Christ, I'm in the kingdom of heaven. There is a line back there. It's the kingdom of the enemy. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and, and delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of love. That's just the beginning. It's a journey. And we make progress in the kingdom of God when we surrender to his rule in our lives. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done in me as it is in heaven. Pray daily, next day. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. As we surrender to the rule of God, the will of God, his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes in our life more fully. So you can say, we enter the kingdom, but as we progress, the kingdom enters us more and more. Or we could even say, we are going deeper and deeper and deeper into the kingdom of God. And the closer we get, or the more progress we make, the more of God we know the more of God we have in our lives, the more of his love, the more of his joy, the more of his peace, the more of his power, the more of his satisfaction. Those are the rewards of love. As we surrender to love and obey God, we truly become, as we were singing earlier, friends of God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I've come to the end of my time this morning where I want to make an appeal to everybody today who has never ever surrendered to Christ in the way that I was talking about. In other words, you've never come before God and said, God, I want you to be my heavenly Father. I thank you for sending Jesus to be my Savior. And I want to step into the kingdom of God. I want to put my trust in Christ. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want God's love to be poured out into my heart today. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to just pray a prayer after, after me. Whoever you are and wherever you are right now under the sound of my voice, if you have never accepted Christ as Savior, then you are you are outside the kingdom. The wrath of God is on you. You're, the, the, ultimately, we could say the devil's your father, not God. But he wants you to become his child. He won't force it on you. It's a choice you make. And here's the choice you can, in this prayer, I'll pray it in such a way that you can express it. But it'll be a choice in which you receive Christ, his son, and enter into his kingdom. And I want us all to pray it, just to help those who are praying it for the first time. But at the end of this prayer, I'll ask those who did pray it for the first time to acknowledge that they prayed it, because we've got something to give you, to help you at this point in your spiritual experience. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This is the prayer. Are you ready to say it after me loud and strong? Are you ready to say it after me loud and strong? Say it this. Lord Jesus Christ, I come before you now. And I yield myself to you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for being my Savior. 
Thank you for being raised again. I invite you to come into my life. To be my Savior. And my friend. And my Lord. I turn away from my sin. And I embrace the will of God. For my life. Save me Jesus. In your own name I pray. Amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to give you something. Somebody's going to come and stand with you. And I want to pray with you briefly before we finish. So help me do that. I want you to lift your hand and keep lifting up until somebody comes and stands with you. Who's going to be the first today to say, yes, I prayed that prayer. I want Christ in my life. Lift your hand right now. Don't be ashamed. Nobody's looking at you anyway. This is important though that you establish this. You're saying yes to Jesus today. Lift your hand right now. All over this place. There are people here. You know you're here. You need to be saying yes to Jesus. Let's see that hand. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. There are people here. Come on. What's, what's the matter? What do you got to lose? He's given you everything in giving you Jesus. Lift your hand. There is nobody at this moment lifting the hand. To my left there is somebody. To my left there is somebody. I need to go into the other parts of the building. If you didn't lift your hand and you know you should have, you've got to see some of these people that are standing at the front. They will talk to you afterwards. I'm sure there are some. For some reason, either you didn't understand me or you're a bit shy, but you really got to settle this issue today. Over there in the coronet, you lift your hand. Somebody's there with you. Behind me in the overflow area, downstairs, there's somebody there with you on the internet. You get in touch with us because we believe that today is your day. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, for this lady and perhaps others who might have lifted their hand, uh, wished to, and others who did in the other parts of the building, we pray, make it real today. Let them know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. God bless you.